0: hello and thank you for listening to the dementia researcher podcast this week's show is brought to you in collaboration with the alzheimer's association it was originally recorded by them as a webinar on the 26th of august and we're delighted to have permission to share it with you as a podcast please remember if you'd like to listen to more alzheimer's association webinars visit their website at alz.org and
1: check out their iStar pages thank you for listening Hello, my name is Claire Sexton. I'm Director of Scientific Programs and Outreach at the Alzheimer's Association, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this Alzheimer's Association awardee update. Our awardee today is Professor Cindy Weinstein. Cindy is the Eli and Edith Broad Professor of English at the California Institute of Technology, and also a Senior Atlantic Fellow for Equity and Brain Health at the Global Brain Health Institute, or GBHI. While at GBHI, Cindy was awarded a 2020 pilot award for global brain health leaders. And this award supported the development of the book, Finding the Right Words, a story of literature, grief, and the brain. And this is being published by Johns Hopkins University Press in September. And we'll be putting the link to that uh, to pre-order if you would like in the chat. Cindy wrote this book with Professor Bruce Miller the AW and Mary Margaret Claussen Distinguished Professor in Neurology at the University of California, San Francisco, and a co-director of the Global Brain Health Institute. And the book is a memoir of Cindy's father, Jerry Weinstein, who was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease in 1985, when he was just 58 years old. In the book, we hear how just as Cindy was starting her PhD program in literature, her father was in Florida, and his symptoms were progressing, So Cindy describes the irony of the situation as follows. Irony is the condition of reading a book a day in preparation for one's oral exams, while one of the people you love the most in the world, your father, loses at least one word a day and can't read a stop sign anymore. The book combines Cindy's expertise in literature and Bruce's in neurology to create a lyrical, informative, interdisciplinary and deeply moving account of dementia, I cried probably every third or fifth page through the book. Um, Today we'll be hearing about background to the book, we'll be hearing more excerpts from it, uh, read by Cindy and also read by Bruce, we'll be discussing those passages and we'll also be answering any questions you may have. Um, So first, thank you both for joining us today. We're delighted to be uh, talking about your book. Um, First, Bruce, just to set the scene a little, I wanted just to, if you could tell us a bit more about your your background and also about the the Global Brain Health Institute, which was so integral in uh, forming this collaboration.
2: I'm uh, honored to be here and thanks so much, uh, Claire, uh, and the Alzheimer Association for hosting, hosting us today. So I, I, I met uh, uh, these two uh, brilliant women, uh, Cindy Weinstein and Claire Sexton, uh, when they were fellows in our Global Brain Health uh, Institute. And uh, the the idea is that we are facing an epidemic. Many of the people listening today know that from personal experience. Um, uh, One of the things that uh, we have realized and the Alzheimer's Association has been really brilliant in telling this story is that there are many things uh, that happened during our lives that uh, uh, we could do to change the likelihood that we would ever get Alzheimer's disease. Uh, So these are the uh, potentially reversible or treatable components to cognitive impairment. These are things like exercising, living in a rich uh, environment, preventing uh, head trauma, eating in a way that prevents cardiovascular and and cerebrovascular brain risks. And so the, the Global Brain Health Institute Uh, was formed to train fellows uh, from across the world, from uh, underserved communities, to focus on these uh, reversible, preventable factors associated with uh, bad aging. And so uh, the the founder of this was Chuck Feeney, a a great philanthropist who doesn't want his name mentioned or put on any of his uh, philanthropic efforts, but This is a program that uh, is uh, half in Ireland. Uh, Chuck is Irish American who adores Ireland uh, and uh, the other half in San Francisco. Um, And we train fellows uh, uh, from diverse uh, regions and also uh, from diverse professions. We began to realize that uh, people like Cindy who who bring eloquence to writing about these problems are critically important to finding solutions. Uh, We knew that uh, someone like Claire, who came to us from Oxford, who wanted to increase exercise in our communities and work on these uh, uh, preventable risk factors, were gonna be uh, key uh, to the future of our planet.
1: Thank you. And uh, Cindy, how did you first hear about GBHI and how how far along were you uh, with the development of, of the book when you first got involved?
0: Well, thank you, Claire. I had no idea what GBHI was uh, until uh, the summer of 2017, when I had been having trouble finding a co-author for the book. I had spoken with uh, Ken Kosick at Santa Barbara about working on the book together, and I had sent him a couple of chapters. That's how much I had done. And he really liked them and said, I don't have time to do this with you, but there's this guy at UCSF uh, and you should really get in touch with him. And that turned out to be Bruce Miller. And I wrote an email to Bruce and in his great generosity, he said, come on down to UCSF and let's talk about your project And we did, and we shared the books we loved. And he liked some books that I really didn't like very much, but we decided that this would not be fatal. And he then said the magic words to me, which were, do you want to learn some science? And I said, yes, I would. And he said, well, then you need to apply to this program that we have called GPHI. And this was very important for me to do because I didn't want to write this memoir by myself. I had been living with my father's dementia and thinking about it for so long by myself and knew that I needed another language, another discourse to fully understand or more fully understand what was happening with his brain. And I applied to GBHI and it was um, a grueling application process, several essays to be written, several interviews to go through. And then I was accepted into the program and had a magical year. I just got a smidge of neurology from the very best in the world. I got to attend Uh, grand rounds, talks at eight in the morning every Friday, and spent most of my time googling the words that I didn't understand. I spent many hours trying to learn how to read a PET scan. Bruce assured me that by the time the year was over, I would learn how to do that. I did not.
2: Cindy, I have to just clarify for the audience one thing. So uh, th- these books that uh, cindy didn't like they're they're not cartoon books i am a physician but i do read and it was just a, a difference of opinion and it had no effect whatsoever on uh, uh, on the product that we uh, carved together
1: yeah, No, i wanted to ask you bruce because you know we heard from cindy you know the importance for her then of having science contributing to the project you know for you then uh well you know what's the importance of you know, this bringing in literature as well as having that scientific component.
2: I I learned so much from Cindy from the minute we started talking, and it it really put me into a different space than I had ever been in before. I I was beginning to feel uh, in a way um, that was truly profound what happens to a caregiver when they begin to lose someone that they love. And uh, you know, Cindy was as eloquent about this as anyone I had ever met. Um, she brought the, the the perspective, the point of view of a literary professor and a writer. Uh, and, and I think it, almost immediately it began to change the way I worked with families and patients.
1: And I think... Um, a bit later on, we'll probably touch upon a bit more of some of those themes about how the impact of the, the diagnosis and prognosis um, on uh, family members. Um, but first, kind of, I think we might dive in with one of the other themes uh, throughout the book, which is uh, language. So then, this is like the appreciation and the understanding of uh, scientific language okay, the the language around literature, um, and also Jerry's loss of language um, over time. So uh, Cindy, I don't know, uh, would you be okay to to read an excerpt from the book, which uh, focuses
0: on, I think,
1: scientific language in particular?
0: Absolutely. This is from the first chapter of the book called diagnosis. And my section of the chapter is called hitting the fan. Uh, Each chapter uh, focuses on a a clinical presentation of the disease. And I describe it from the point of view of an English professor daughter to which Bruce responds as a neurologist. So um, this is from Hitting the Fan. In the language of literature, the order of events make up the plot, which informs an interpretation. In the language of medicine, the order of the symptoms creates a plot of the disease, which in turn allows for a diagnosis. The best readers of stories help us see the importance of details in the plot that we may have overlooked or failed to appreciate. Literary critics use a strategy of close reading to unfold the complexities of a novel or a poem. Doctors do this too, but what gets closely read are symptoms such as shaky gates, incomplete sentences, and wobbly handwriting. The brain also gets read, as it were, in MRIs and PET. These images of the brain don't reveal the symptoms, but rather explain them with reference to the location of the atrophy or shrinkage in the brain. The best readers of MRIs and PETs can see where the sulci, grooves in the brain, are too deep or too wide, indicating erosion. Or with the case of PET, the areas where metabolism is diminished. They can tell when the gyri, the folds in the brain, lose mass and get brawny signaling deterioration. As an English professor, and the daughter of a father who had early onset Alzheimer's disease with the logopenic variant. I find this language of atrophy, aphasia, sulci and logopenic variant at once powerful and weirdly comforting. I feel enriched by these words, partly because learning new words, even ones that translate into pain, make me happy. And partly because they tell a story about my father that looking back might've been valuable to me at the time he was ill. So that is one section of the diagnosis chapter. The uh, next chapter, is about word finding. And I'm going to turn things over to Bruce to talk about that, but I want to set the stage. The word finding chapter is really a a little vignette about going to the supermarket with my father and him not remembering, not being able to find the word for what he wanted for dinner. The word is crouton. And I tell of our adventure, our terrible adventure, going through the aisles of the supermarket with me, an expert in Scrabble and crossword puzzles, figuring I could find any word that my father couldn't find. And eventually we landed on croutons because he saw the boxes of croutons in the aisles. And Bruce reflects upon the neurology behind what happens when a person with Alzheimer's can't find a word. So Bruce, do you wanna take it from there?
2: Yes, and I think what uh, Cindy describes uh, beautifully in the book is uh, from her point of view as a professor of uh, English, uh, what happens to her father's language. And what's so important to me as a neurologist is the first symptom as Cindy pointed out. So the first symptom uh, that Cindy became aware of with her father was this inability to find the word crouton. Um, And uh, so uh, the section that uh, I write about this is called Where Dementia Decides to Dance. Um, Crouton's a small square shaped piece of fried bread that is placed into soups or salads. The crouton originated in France in the 1800s where a rich and complex food culture was emerging and humans were creating a new way of cooking and eating. Croutons are an acquired taste, rarely appreciated by young children, but by early adulthood, many of us begin to enjoy the aesthetic of eating a soft and chewy green salad with dressing that is dotted with hard and crunchy uh, croutons. The actual origin of crouton is from the Latin word crut, which signifies crust. Ordinarily, words that we use frequently, like mother, father, shirt, cup, table, or house, are more facilely produced than a word like crouton that we learn later in life and that we use infrequently. Therefore, it is not surprising that Jerry Weinstein, as part of his inability to name items, we call this anomia, had difficulty generating crouton during a conversation with his daughter. Jerry's struggle to remember crouton is the first moment that Cindy becomes aware that he is having cognitive issues. Anomia is one of the earliest manifestations of Jerry's Alzheimer's disease. Soon afterwards, Cindy realized that there are other signs of trouble. Jerry was never much of a reader, but now his spelling is off and his writing is shaky. Um, so that is the beginning. Um, and that tells a neurologist that this disease started in the left posterior parietal temporal region of the brain, an area that Alzheimer's disease often hits early on.
1: And how then, also I wanted if you could give a bit of insights into then, how you describe then the diagnosis, uh, Jerry's diagnosis now, with all the knowledge that has built up, would be different to then the diagnosis that was given at the time and what knowledge uh, was around at that time?
2: Well, when uh, Jerry was diagnosed, I think it was really a just coming out of a dark ages of a neurology and psychiatry and geriatrics, where we knew almost nothing about Alzheimer's disease. In the early 80s, uh, people started to become aware that the progressive loss of memory, language, spatial skills is not an ordinary aspect of aging. Uh, it represents a real disease, and it is often caused by Uh, the proteins of Alzheimer's disease, plaques and tangles. Uh, When Jerry was diagnosed, uh, uh, he uh, might've been called organic brain syndrome. Uh, He almost certainly would have been diagnosed much later than he would be today. And uh, I think the anatomic precision, the molecular precision that we have uh, has really transformed diagnosis. We now would say, as opposed to organic brain syndrome. This is a logopenic variant of Alzheimer's disease. It is present uh, initially in the left parietal lobe. There are tangles in that region uh, of Jerry's brain, which are causing loss of function. And uh, remarkably, we're beginning to think about interventions in these early stages.
1: Do you say maybe, a couple of those interventions maybe uh, do you think have the most potential that you're most excited about? Yeah,
2: I I mean, I think the the intervention that we think about intensively, which is prevention, is probably the most important one, and and that is, making sure that people at age 50 don't have high blood pressure, that we treat hypertension, that we go after obesity, that we exercise. So that, that, that's the prevention part that all of us uh, uh, can uh, play a role in. And then there's the interventions once this disease is set in. I think we believe it must be early. So probably even before Jerry began to misuse the word crouton, when the beginning of the buildup of amyloid and tau is starting, that's when we need to intervene. And I think the two exciting therapies are removing amyloid with antibodies. Uh, We have a new FDA approved drug for this. Uh, And I also am very excited about removing the bad tau protein. I think these are the beginnings of very effective early intervention.
1: And also then, yeah, the opportunities for, for early intervention and also the book, I think really illustrates just the wide-ranging impact of, of the disease on, on language, on cognition, mood, sleep, you know, every kind of aspect of uh, functioning. Uh, Cindy then, um, you, would you like to read us a little bit of, about the, the, the passage on uh, sleep disruptions?
0: I didn't know I was gonna write this chapter when I went up to UCSF and became a GBHIR, there were a couple of chapters I didn't know I was going to write. I didn't also know that the book was going to assume the structure that it did. I thought the memory chapter was going to come first because, in my mind, Alzheimer's was all about memory. I didn't realize that there were these other aspects to it. And I learned all about that or some of that in GBHI. And I knew Bruce was a expert in frontotemporal dementia and that behavior is crucial uh, in terms of understanding that disease. And at one point, Bruce, I was talking to Bruce about behavior. He, He said to me, so did your father have any behaviors that seemed unusual And because I was so far away, I didn't see a lot of the behaviors. I I heard about them, but there was one that really stuck in my mind. And that was when he was in a nursing home and tried to pull out the sink. And Bruce said to me, you have to write about that. And that became the seed for a chapter about behavior, and it was in that chapter about behavior when I remembered, um, and I want to talk about that in a little, in a bit, but I remembered that my father had a lot of trouble sleeping. The memory chapter ended up being the last chapter of the book. And Bruce was the one who said to me, that should be the last chapter of the book, because you're remembering all this stuff about your dad that you had paradoxically forgotten. Um, So that's a long way of getting into this um, little excerpt about um, this R-rated excerpt that I am going to edit. I was told that he had sundowners. I remember the moment vividly. It was over lunch at a restaurant in Bethesda, Maryland with my mother and sister. The word sundowners was woven into the conversation in such a way that there was an assumption that I knew what it was, even though no one had told me, which is why I erupted Ever the potty mouthed woman, once I embraced the power that comes with the effective use of a well-placed curse word, and asked, what the F is sundowners? I thought my father had another disease about which I had not been told, as if Alzheimer's weren't enough, After being told to quiet down and calm down and not say F so loud and in public, I was informed that sundowners is not uh, an uncommon condition that people with Alzheimer's sometimes have, and that it happens when day turns into night. As if the days and nights weren't hard enough for my dad, the transition from one to the other was especially tough. I have since learned that the setting of the sun can lead to agitation, anxiety, and aggressive behaviors. I wonder if my dad pulled out the sink at around 5 p.m. I wonder what else he was doing when the sun went down. Thank you.
1: And then like as with all of the the sections in this book, then it goes between you both passing forward for uh, your experience, um and then Bruce able to add context to that so Bruce I wondered if you uh, wanted to comment just on not only just for sleep but also then kind of understanding of uh, behaviors as a whole and how that has that has changed as well
2: yes so a very beautiful uh piece of writing and uh, i i i think uh the every patient with alzheimer's disease is different some are amazingly bland, placid throughout the course of the illness. Others uh, show a fair bit of agitation and confusion, uh, difficulty with attention, particularly as they get more tired. Uh, Oftentimes, uh, someone with Alzheimer's is better in the morning, uh, but by the time afternoon comes along, uh, the uh, tiredness begins to catch up with them. And, and they can become frankly confused. The, you see extraordinary interactions. Uh, sometimes uh, the person can no longer re- recognize their partner as their partner. I've seen people call the 911 to get the strange man out, out of the bedroom. Um, the, the, the other aspect of this is how strongly linked um, this confusion is to sleep-awake disturbances. And I think one of the big stories of Alzheimer's that we really neglected, our patients have told this to us, but they have asked, well, my loved one had sleep trouble their whole life. Um, uh, They took medicines uh, to help them with their sleep. Did did that in any way um, increase the likelihood that they would get sick? And I think there's a lot of work done now that uh, suggests that Yes, many people with Alzheimer's disease and another form of dementia, dementia with Lewy bodies uh, get sleep disturbances. Uh, We also now know that when we get into deep sleep, it's critically important for two things. One, it allows us to remember. It allows us to lay down those memories that we've experienced during the day in a more permanent way. If you don't get into deep sleep, you don't remember what happened. The other part of it is even more remarkable, which is that these bad proteins, amyloid and tau, are cleared from the brain during deep sleep. So if you take a medicine like Valium that prevents you from getting into deep sleep because you can't sleep well, well, you sleep, but you sleep in a dangerous way uh, that begins to set the Alzheimer's disease process uh, uh, into the brain. So I, I think, a consultation uh, around a memory problem uh, often begins with uh, uh, questions about sleep because it's so linked to how, uh, how we develop these diseases and, and how well we do with them.
1: And it's also you know, a very active area of research for, for several GBHI fellows. So Elisaias uh, Karagiorgia, Constantina Sakara, in Greece, also Yue Leng in China. Um, because of the the wide ranging uh, impact, and not just on the brain, but then also then on loved ones, I think for sleep is so important. You know, it's one of the uh, key drivers for people deciding. You know, to be moving uh, into a residential uh, setting. Uh, one of the other themes, you know, that emerges really throughout the book is just as you said at the start, Bruce. Uh, just bringing home the impact, the diagnosis, symptoms, um, has not only on the person living with dementia, but on the the family as a whole. And um, Cindy in the book, you know, throughout the book, then uh, you're grappling with decisions regarding, you know, where you should be based, you know, when you were at grad school, in California, whether you should be staying in California, whether you should be moving to Florida, whether you should move somewhere in between, uh, you know, on the um, East Coast um, to be able to move between or commuting, and you know, a, a part that you know really stood out to me was that you were saying, you know, these these were choices that you might not quite recover from, that you you know found hard at the time, and that you also, you know, still find hard. Um today and there ones that I think are also faced by a number of us you know a number of researchers and clinicians about you know where to be based how we can uh, follow careers but also uh, care for families as well um I wondered if you wanted to uh, expand a bit more on that and also read some examples
0: from your from your book along those themes sure um Those were some of the hardest parts of the book to write, to talk about the decision to stay at Berkeley and finish my degree and knew that my parents were completely supportive of that. And I knew that my father would have been furious with me if I had given that up to take care of him and my mother, too. The opening part of this paragraph is when I'm reading Moby Dick for the second time and my thesis advisor at Brandeis says to me, well, maybe now you'll have something to say about it. With those words, I was completely taken with this professor and obviously with Melville and found myself reading Moby Dick again in my first year of graduate school with a different and also beloved professor. He would tell me once I had my father's diagnosis and finally knew why my phone calls with him were so short and strange and unsatisfying, that if I left Berkeley for a graduate program on the East Coast, I was thinking Johns Hopkins, and thought I could commute from Maryland to Florida to help my mother take care of my father, I should just forget it either stay in Berkeley and do the PhD or move to Florida and be with my parents. I couldn't have it both ways. I would do a crummy job with both if I tried. He was right, but man was I in trouble. Not nearly as much as my father, of course, but I heard a small bell in my brain sounding the alarm. The poet Emily Dickinson wrote, I felt a funeral in my brain, me too. This was a choice from which I might never quite recover that has turned out to be true.
1: Thank you. And how did you find then writing the book as an experience
0: and looking looking back on those, those decisions? Each chapter was challenging and brutal in its own way. I should say that having um, The best psychiatrist around, Mary DeMay at GBHI, was really helpful. Some of those sessions that I attended were really tough. I remember we saw a video of nurses in in an assisted living home working with patients who had forgotten their parent had died, for example. And at that time, the idea was to remind the person with dementia of the reality of the situation. And so the nurse would tell this poor 75-year-old woman that her mother had died years ago, and the woman would re-experience that loss all over again. And that was sort of around the time that my father was ill and in nursing homes. And that session sent me straight into the arms of Mary Dumay who helped me process that. Uh, having Bruce to talk with about these experiences of remembrance, these very difficult ones, um, that was incredibly helpful. The GBHI cohort was amazing. Uh, they read my work, commented on it, told me when I was being too morose. I had a light bulb moment. It happened in July, the year at GBHI was almost over and I had to write an introduction to the book and I didn't know how to write that. And for some reason, not for some reason, it had to do with writing the memory chapter. I remembered the funeral from my father and in the Jewish tradition What you do after the funeral is you sit shiva for a week and people come and bring extremely unhealthy food so that you don't have to do any cooking. And usually what happens is you sit around and you talk about happy memories of the person who died. And memory was such a loaded term and such a loaded concept at least for me, um, that I was completely incapable of participating in that shiva. I went into dissociation mode and I was physically there, but totally somewhere else. And after the year at GBHI and coming to the end of having drafted my sections, what I realized was that I had been sitting shiva for a year with Bruce. I didn't know it. 1st didn't know it but that's what I was doing and I was sitting shiva in the way I knew how which was reading and learning and writing and grieving and mourning
1: and I think you know it's important I think to to emphasize you know it's not a morose book there are you know many also times of of laughing and many kind of poignant times. One that stands out was, um, I think when you were visiting your father and fell into the water and the kind of, um, I think sometimes the added appreciation of those types of moments and shared uh, shared joy and shared laughter in the context of someone
0: uh, living with dementia. Um, I really appreciate your saying that uh, because I did know that within the storytelling of this very sad book, humor was crucial. And so accessing those moments that were, in fact, funny, it was not only essential for me, but I also thought for the reader. Um, I wanted the reader to keep turning the pages. So thank you for saying that.
1: Just touching upon them, like when you're looking back at the memories, then um, you know, one thing that you discussed was, you know, how your kind of memories of your father changed, you know, how then, you know, immediately following his death, they were all kind of more of him post diagnosis. Um, and then the experience of writing the book and other memories from earlier on coming back and wondered if you could uh, speak a little bit that, about that. And Bruce, also, please, please do time in with.
0: Um, well, I, I would just say that, that for me, I, I wasn't afraid to look back anymore. They were, and I write about this, the memories were so precious mm. of him being healthy. And I was so damaged by the experience of his death, which took over a decade, that I didn't trust myself um, to look back and to take care of those memories. And and there was an obstacle, there was a psychic obstacle. And I don't know how this happened, but I think through time and having my own children and um, learning neurology, there was a way in which the scientific information unlocked part of my own brain that allowed me, to no longer focus on what his disease was doing to me, but what it did to him.
2: And I, I just wanted to comment about this memory chapter that we did together. It was our, our last one. And it, I, I would think it, for me, it was probably uh, the, the the hardest uh, to do and the uh, greatest uh, learning for me as well. And uh, just a, a couple comments about that. for. For one is, I think, um, memory remembering is good, and I think uh, avoiding it, uh, not engaging with it, it doesn't work because you uh, go back to it in your dreams, and you know. And I think more and more we've learned that uh, we uh, shape memories uh, when we're dreaming, sometimes falsely, sometimes, you know, truly. But what, what this uh, this experience also did for me is. I was trying to explain memory to the lay reader uh, about uh, how we remember, how we remember events, how we remember emotional events. And I realized that the nomenclature, the structure that we have for memory, is very incomplete. Um, It it made me realize that science has a long way to go to think about uh, uh, with regards to how we remember. And the, the other thing um, that, you know, I think in parallel with Cindy, this is something that the book stimulated. I, I started thinking about my dad and my mom, very, very different sorts of deaths and, uh, um, uh, but also, uh, began to remember things, uh, that, ha- ha- uh, during their illnesses that so strongly shaped me, that hurt me, that, uh, made me sad, but, um, uh, when I finished the book, uh, my mother uh, passed away uh, and um, I, I began to think about the, the great things about my mom and uh, I wanted to incorporate and I think Cindy had the same experience, the great side of my mother into who I was. And so I think these memories uh, that we have uh, about our parents, our loved ones are, uh, you know very much propel us and make us better.
1: Thank you, thank you so much for 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 sharing so openly, you know, in the book and also here. And Bruce, have you had any feedback from others on the on the book?
2: Well, I I, I guess I give special thanks to Rosalie Gerhardt who uh, I've worked with since I started in 1998, uh, who really wanted me to write something that was um, more for uh, the general public, and I think you know. I was so lucky that Cindy came along and asked me to work with her. I mean, I was really the lucky one. Um, uh, and, and so I think between Rosalie's encouragement and you know Cindy's passion, um, th- this was really a glorious year for me. The, the other thing we should probably both say is we had two unbelievable uh, helpers on this. One was uh, Carolyn Prelo on our side and the other was Sarah Weinstein. Uh, uh, who uh, both were intimately involved with making this look right and feel right. And uh, uh, they, they were fantastic.
1: I think that brings us uh, to time. So I just wanted to um, say a huge thank you uh, to you both uh, for joining us, for telling us more um, about the book. For anybody um, who is interested, we put the link back in. Um, You'll be able to order your own copy, receive it in the post in September. Um, please do, uh, it's such a fantastic book and really you'll have had the taste of it today than just bringing together those different worlds, the, the lived experience, the scientific insights and really in such a, an eloquent uh, and interesting fashion throughout. So um, thank you uh, Cindy, thank you Bruce and uh, please do keep us updated uh, with how the book gets on. Um, as well after its publication.
2: Thank you so much,
0: Claire, and everyone for coming. Brought to you by dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.